Good to be with you this morning. This morning we're continuing in the book of Ephesians, or the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We've got kind of a long section that we're going to look at, 5, 1 through 20, this morning. So it reads like this. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving." For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now... You are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music with your heart, from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please join me in prayer. Bless us this day, O Lord, with vision. May this place be a sacred place, a telling space, where heaven and earth meet. Amen. So this week, as I was reading and working on this text, it occurred to me that I needed to add something to my resume, and I decided this week that I am going to become a social media influencer. Because there's a gap, yeah, there's a gap in the coverage, folks. We've got young millennial influencers, we've got, you know, emerging influencers, we've got all, but how many 50-something Xer influencers do we have? Not enough, I can tell you that. We need some influencers. Or Or maybe we don't. But the point is, is that this, we live in this weird time when that's actually something that people get paid and some 
not very many, but some make a whole lot of money, and their job title is influencer. Right? It's a brave new world. But this whole idea will make sense when we'll come back to it in a little bit, but this idea of being influenced, right? We kind of act like that whole role is new. The only thing that's different is now that people have taken on that role for themselves and they've cut out the marketing uh, agencies, right? It's like we've become our own marketing uh, departments, and we'll market for companies. They don't need to hire uh, an ad company because they can get people to do it for free. Pretty sweet deal for them. But this idea of being influenced is important as we look at this passage. Now, as we look at this passage, what's happening in this second half of the letter to the Ephesians is that Paul, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, is laying out a framework. He's laying out some guidelines. He's laying out this, these parameters of what it means to be this new humanity that Christ has created. Right? Remember in the beginning of the book, we talked about how um, before it, people were separated into groups, and Paul's whole argument was that in Christ, he has created one new humanity. Right? And so now in this second half of the letter, he's laying out the framework for how it is that we live as these new kind of humans. And so in chapter 5, he starts out by saying that we should follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us. So follow God's example. That's how the NIV translates it. In the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, it says, it translates that beginning of that verse, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. And then Eugene Peterson translates the, that first verse like this. Watch what God does, and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Watch what God does, and then do it. And then he goes on to talk about, uh, in the next verse, that we should walk in the way of love. Friends, this is an important piece of Paul's uh, teaching for us to understand how it is that we are to be in the world as these new creations in Christ. We are to imitate God, and imitating God, Paul is saying here, is to walk in the way of love. Which means that we seek to do and be the, the same way in the world that our primary example of how God is was in the world, Jesus, right? So we've been walking, or the kids have been walking through the parable of the Good Samaritan this month, and uh, a couple of years ago I preached that text, and my refrain in that sermon and my summary of the, the teaching of the Good Samaritan parable is there is no other, there is only neighbor. There is no other, there is only 
neighbor. In other words, we don't get to choose who to love. Because if we're walking in the way of God, we love everyone. And we demonstrate that love in our actions. We walk in the way of love. Now, one of the challenges that we have as religious people, as followers of Jesus, as people who seek to live in the way of Jesus, is that oftentimes we get a little bit, we can tend to get a little bit uh, obsessed, a little bit locked in, a little bit uh, narrow, uh, narrowly focused on certain aspects of following Jesus and not on other aspects. Okay? So what that looks like is, um, is apparent in these first verses. Because I can think, as someone who has grown up and, and been in the church my entire life, I can think of many times when we have focused on one part of the verses that we read today, and not at all, very few times have I heard us focus on the other part of that verse. Can you imagine what verse I'm talking about? Happens really early. It reads like this, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. And in my experience, we might be tempted to think that the verse stops there because we will talk an awful lot about sexual sin, not so much about the rest of the passage or of any kind of impurity, and here comes the kicker, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. It's like by our focus, we might think that, that, middle, that middle two, those middle two clauses are omitted from the passage. And that it reads that we should not have a hint of sexual immorality because these are impro- this is improper for God's holy people. Because let's be honest with ourselves. The word that's used here, that when we talk about greed or covetousness, this is difficult for a number of reasons. One, it makes us uncomfortable because we live in a culture, in a country that is founded in some sense, capitalism, our system of finance, our system of economy is built on covetousness. It's built on greed. It's built on the need for more because if we don't need any more, capitalism doesn't work, right? I mean, imagine if we didn't need any more, capitalism kind of falls apart, right? And, we're bi- and it's just kind of inbred into the way we understand the world that we should always be looking for more, more, more. And so when we hear these words about covetousness and greed, it's a little more difficult for us to wrestle with. It makes us immediately uncomfortable. As uncomfortable as we are in the church in talking about sex, we are even more uncomfortable talking about greed. So the other piece of this that makes, it, that makes this difficult and more dangerous in some ways for our souls is that to talk about greed is to talk about something that in many ways is considered maybe respectable and, and lauded in our, in our culture, right? You, you imagine who are the business 
tycoons, the business magnates that are held up as successful and, and the people that we most want to emulate. They're the people at the top of the heap with the most, who have made the most, right? Now, I'm not saying that being rich or having a lot is in and, in and of itself sinful or evil. That's not at all the point. The point is what drives us. The point is where is, what are we relying on? Because if we are relying on those things for our security, then that is, in fact, idolatry. And falls under this, this part of the passage that Paul is talking about here. The challenge for us is, is that one of the things that we do is it's very easy for us to talk about other people's sexual sin or our own sexual sin or easier than it is to talk about where we might have some issues with money and uh, possessions and needing more all the time. So Paul then goes on and tells us that it's not only that, but that we have to watch the way that we talk. Uh, he goes on to say there should be no obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So what is happening here? Well, primarily what Paul has in view here is not, again, like we said last week when we talked about this, it's not just saying bad swears or using coarse language, although that certainly falls under the purview of this. Um, it is um, the talk that he's talking about here is light and irrelevant talk about sacred things. Making light of or, um, you know, about sacred things. Being flippant about the things of God. Now, for many of you, this may not be a challenge, but I can tell you as one who is a professional Christian, uh, or another word for that is Pharisee, those of us who do this every day, this, is, this can be a temptation because, you know, we sometimes get comfortable and we talk about the church and the things of God, and, and it's easy sometimes to become disillusioned, right? And so all of a sudden, then you're making light of these things that are sacred. And Paul says, no, there's no place for that. We have to keep those things of God held up and we have to keep them sacred and to not talk about them foolishly. And so Paul is lumping all these things together. He's bringing all these things up. And again, the temptation for us is to make these things, um, like I talked about last week, to kind of bring them down to the lowest common denominator. So when we read a text like this, we focus on the one that isn't ours because that makes it easy for, easier for us to deal with. You ever notice that? Right? So if, if sexual, sexual immorality is not somewhere where you happen to struggle, then that's where you'll focus because that's easy and it's easier to then start talking about the speck in somebody else's eye than dealing with the plank in your own. And plus, if we focus on that one, then I don't really have to deal with the fact that, I'm, uh, that I have problems with greed. That I'm a conspicuous consumer, to use a phrase that you almost never hear anymore. Right? I mean, it's that kind of thing. We have that uh, tendency. So then Paul goes on to say how these people, the people who do these things, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. 
And he urges us, as he moves through this passage, to find out, he says in verse 10, to find out what pleases the Lord. Live as children of the light and find out what pleases the Lord. That phrase, find out what pleases the Lord, is interesting because it is, um, it's this continual, this, it suggests a continual action to ascertain what the will of God is in every situation, right? So it's this idea of knowing what the will of God is. Now, here's one of the things I can tell you, that as a pastor, one of the questions I get the most is this, um, about what is God's will for me? And we've so, we've kind of fallen short in our teaching about God's will, because we've made it like, um, we've made it seem, I think, sometimes like God's will is some kind of secret code, that you have to have the secret decoder ring to understand what God's will for your life is, right? Um, And I get questions all the time about people struggling with understanding what God's will for them is. But here's the thing. God's will is not a secret code. God's will is actually quite simple. God's will is that we be the new kind of human being that Jesus Christ died and rose for and created in that death and resurrection. That one new humanity that Paul talked about at the beginning of this letter. That's God's will, right? We, and where we get lost is we think that God's will has to be about, well, do I take this job or that job? Now, there are times and seasons when perhaps God is really interested in which job you take, but I can guarantee you that God is more interested that you be a Jesus kind of person whichever job you take. So God's will is not some secret code. God's will is that we would be formed more and more into the image of Jesus, that we would live in the light, that we would imitate God, that we would live lives of love that are marked by the things that Jesus demonstrated for us. That is God's will. And so that is where we should focus. Here's another temptation that happens. And it's easy for us, I think, to miss this in this passage. But in verse 12, Paul says, when he's talking about these, um, the sins that we're to avoid and that we're to, um, that we're to, sorry, that we're to avoid, be careful, um, For once you were darkness, now you are light. Live as children of the light. Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, by our behavior, I would suggest to you that this is one of our theme verses. Or at least if you asked people who are not Christians, who are not a part of the church, they would say that this describes what Christians do. We make a lot of noise about sins, especially other people's sins, and bad behavior, right? And there's some reasons for that, and I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't ever speak up and speak out, but we've become so focused on it that we don't pay attention to what Paul says immediately following that. So, and this seems a little confusing. First he says, expose them, and then he says, 
in verse 12, it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Okay, uh, (laughs) how am I supposed to expose on the one hand if I'm not supposed to mention on the other hand? Well, I think what Paul is getting after is the key is in verse 8 where he says, live as children of light. Paul is saying that our very lives should shed light on these things. He's not saying that we should organize a, uh, the word just flew out of my head. Good morning. Um, That we should organize a boycott of, you know, this company, that company, or whatever it is, or that we should cancel this person or that person because of their horrible behavior, right? He's saying that we should live in such a way that everything is exposed by the light. That's what he says later. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. You see, the power of the gospel and living in the way of Jesus is that we don't go around pronouncing and calling people out. We go around living and imitating God, living lives of love, and those lives themselves illuminate those things. Now, I understand that this is challenging, and this is not really how we've operated. And sometimes there are those places where I think it is right for us to call out sinfulness and injustice and all of those things. The problem is is that more often than not, we focus on those places that are not our own. And it very quickly becomes an operation, a mass operation of removing specks and ignoring planks. Because Paul goes so far to say, one commentator commented, or commented that Paul's mentioning this, that this idea that it's shameful to mention what, it, what the disobedient do, um, is that the idea that's communicated there is that the more we focus on those things as Christians, they, those things actually will, um, as we continue to talk about them, rub off on us. Right? So Paul is saying that we need to live in a different way. The other thing that I think we probably have learned by now is that every time, you ever notice that every time Christians organize a boycott of this company, that company, this book, that movie, whatever it might be, is that the numbers only go up? (laughs) It's like we're advertising for them. Right? So just something to chew on. It's this idea that we need to live in such a way to let our lives do the talking, focus on removing our own planks, rather than to decide that we are the arbiters of morality for everyone, whether they follow Jesus or not. And that is challenging for us. Because we really like focusing on just one or two of those areas instead of seeking to to imitate God and to live lives of love. Now, all that to say, I am not standing here arguing that nothing matters, that we don't have any responsibility. Because in the end, the last verses of this section, Paul's very clear that it does matter. 
He says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. I think where we get stuck when we deal with these kind of ethical issues is that we hear these ethical frameworks and we automatically kind of slide into this really rigid either-or um, mindset. And I think that what's more helpful is to think of, to remember some context. The first, con- the first contextual thing that's helpful, I think, to remember is who Paul was. Yes, he was a follower of Jesus, but before that, he was a Pharisee who understood and knew the law better than anyone in this room, certainly, right? And one of the things that we miss in the Jewish understanding of the law is they saw the law as freedom. We hear the word law or rule, and our kind of cultural automatic reaction is, is negative, generally. We don't view laws as something good. We view them as something restrictive. Whereas the understanding for Paul is that what he's doing by setting these frameworks is he's setting parameters and and boundaries for us to live within so that we might have lives that are thriving and filled with joy and filled with uh, love so that we can imitate God in a way that, that is winsome to people, that draws them to that way of life. I think too often we think of, um, if you're familiar with the old story, Babette's Feast, which tells the story of this woman who um, had grown up in a very small community, and I think it was Norway, and they were very, they were, everyone in that town belonged to a very strict pietist sect where there was no joy. There was no, you know, you didn't enjoy anything because li- that's not how life is supposed to be as you follow Jesus, Right? And it's just all restrictions and things you don't do. And she went away and became a chef. But then she had to come back to her village, and she decides that she's going to throw a feast for these people. And it becomes a parable of the gospel, right? Because Jesus comes, and he he demonstrates that the life lived in God is a life filled with joy and wholeness and completeness. And the rules are there to simply kind of make a boundary for us so that we can live in a way that that reflects those things. Another way to think of it would be to think of if if you have ever raised or babysat a toddler, right? You, um, You set apart spots, places where either the toddler cannot get in or that you teach them that they cannot go, things they cannot touch. And that is not to simply control the toddler's life. It's so that the toddler can explore and learn and roam so that they can learn and grow as they should. But it gives them protection, right? So we teach toddlers that, no, don't touch the stove because the stove is hot. And if you touch the stove, you're going to get burned and it's not going to feel good. We don't teach them not to touch the stove because we need to control what they do. We teach them to not touch the stove so that they can explore that whole room and know what's safe and what isn't. Paul is, um, Paul's goal here is to give us parameters so that we can figure out what life looks like in the Spirit 
what life looks like as we seek to be imitators of God. We view these restrictions oftentimes as um, these negative controlling factors when in fact those things are there not to uh, repress us but to give us freedom. And it's an entirely different way of understanding. So Paul in verse 15 is telling us that decisions matter, that we should be intentional about what we allow to influence us. He gives three pairs in this, in this section of things that we should pay attention to. He says that we should be not unwise, but wise. He says that we should not be foolish, but understand. And he says that we should not be drunk, but we should be filled with the Spirit. So, these three pairs of not this, but this, Paul is giving us options of ways that we can live into this life, ways that we can imitate God in lives of love by choosing the better side of the equation. So choose to be wise, not unwise. Choose to understand rather than to be foolish. Choose to be filled with the Spirit rather than drunk. Now, again, one of those places, you know, we've, we focus and we hear these choices and, and sometimes we just get, we get locked in. So when we hear something about do not be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit, then we turn it into you absolutely cannot drink alcohol, right? I mean, I grew up in a tradition where um, that was certainly, you know, basically the, the teaching, you know. I mean, my grandparents' house, there was no alcohol in that house. And I thought that my grandparents were teetotalers until my grandfather died. And I, and I said that in front of my mom and my, and my aunts. And they were all like, no, he just didn't drink at home. <laughs> Which isn't to say he was given to drunkenness. That's not my point. But um, we, we take these things and we, and we, um, we amplify them. Right? So we take do not be drunk with wine and we turn it into you shouldn't drink alcohol at all. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that we have to be wise. We have to, if we're going to drink alcohol, you have to use it responsibly. And don't allow it to cloud uh, or to influence your decision making, which is what happens when we're drunk. Right? You make bad decisions. So don't do that. But instead, we turn it into, you know, something else. So one of my New Testament professors once said that, you know, doing that with the Scriptures, taking one command and making it even more than what Jesus says doesn't make you more holy. It just makes you a zealot. <laughs> right? So Paul's argument here is that for us to make good choices, to be aware of what influences us. And then making the most of the time, right? Verse 16, Paul tells us to make the most of the time. The word that's used here is kairos. One way to translate that word is opportunity. Make the best possible use of the kairos moments, the opportunities, unless they're wasted. 
You see, and what happens is if we choose poorly, if we choose the, the negative side of the, equa- the three pairs that Paul gives us, if we choose to be unwise, foolish, and drunk, we will miss every opportunity, and we won't be able to make the most of it. Whether that opportunity benefits us or whether that's an opportunity for us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with someone else. The point for us is to choose well, to be wise, to be understanding, to be filled with the Spirit. So when those Kairos moments present themselves, we are ready to step in and live in the center of God's will, which is you know, a phrase that I think can be helpful if we remember what God's will is, which is to be formed into the image of Jesus, to live in the way of Jesus, to be imitators of God, living lives of love. That is the center of God's will. And so if we are to seize those kairos moments, we need to make sure that we're living in that will and in that way so that we can do that, to make the most of every opportunity. Paul goes on then to give more warnings about how it is that we should do this. He gives more argument for do not get drunk because it leads to debauchery. Now, there's a word, right? (laughs) When was the last time you used debauchery in everyday conversation? Debauchery is essentially living without restraint, with no parameters. It's it's dissolute, another one, (laughs) dissolute living, wild living, excessive living. If you want a picture of what that living looks like, go to Luke 15 and read the parable of the waiting father, or as you may know it, the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son was given to debauchery when he was in the far-off land, right? He lived without restraint. Another way of thinking of this, Paul is saying, "Be, be careful and pay attention and avoid those influences that impair you from making the most of the time, from making the most of every opportunity. Another way to think of it is intentionally allow God's spirit, intentionally allow God to be the primary influence on your life rather than sex, alcohol, money, greed, whatever. This goes back to chapter 4, verse 30, in uh, what we looked at last week, if you remember. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What Paul is saying here is that if we allow those things, greed and sex and money and, and that kind of dissolute living that he's talking about in this passage, to be the primary influences of our in our lives and in our decision-making, then we will grieve the Holy Spirit. We'll grieve God because we're not living into that new humanity that he talked about in the beginning of this letter. The new humanity that Christ created through his sacrifice and resurrection. So Paul is saying here that we should not grieve the Spirit, but that we should be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Present tense, continuous action. Go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. How are we filled? We are filled through intentional choices. 
We're, infil- we're filled by intentionally allowing the influence of God. Another way to think about this is to ask the question, who or what do we allow to influence our lives or choices? But not, uh, not just that. We have to speak, Paul then goes on to say, to one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs. I've always found that verse odd, right? Because I don't come to church and speak to one another in psalms and hymns and, you know, that kind of thing. And it's always been a little odd to me. But I think what Paul is after here is to say that when we gather and when we worship and when we gather in our small groups and when we are living life together, we're allowing the influences of the, of the Scriptures, of our life together in community, in worship, to form us into the, into the image of Jesus. You see, we're not just here uh, doing our due diligence and making sure that we're checking the box, at least I hope not. We're here to allow the Spirit to form us more into the image of Jesus. We worship to give God glory, but also to allow the Spirit's space to form us so that we might discern God's will, so that we might imitate God and live lives of love. Paul is speaking about allowing this intentional influence of Jesus and the Spirit and and urging us to submit to it. We're going to return to that when we get to the next chapter. Submit one to another. And what's the reason for that submission? It's so that we grow. What's the object of our growth? The object of our growth is to grow more into the image of Jesus. It's not to become spiritual giants. It's not to become morally pure. It's not to achieve some level of salvation so that we can, so that everybody sees how good we are. No, it's none of that. It's to be formed into the image of Jesus so that we might imitate God and live lives of love. So here are some questions for you to take into your week because I think this is one of those texts where you just have to wrestle with what God has for you. First question, are you aware of and open to the influence of Jesus and the Spirit in your life? Are you aware of and open to the influence of Jesus and the Spirit? Second question, what area is the Spirit prompting you to be open or where you might be resisting or ignoring that influence? This is where it's going to pinch. What area is the Spirit prompting you to be more open or where you might be resisting or ignoring that influence? Because you see, friends, as we seek to follow in the way of Jesus, we all allow influences. The only question is, which influencers do we give the primary voice to? Which ones hold the most weight? Amen.